It was a horrific scene, something out of a nightmare. In the wee hours of March 1st, 2008, the Caffey family is jolted awake in their beds. Before it's over, every family member is either shot or stabbed. All of them are terrorized and then left for dead as their home burns to the ground around them. An attack on a Raines County family left a mother and her two sons dead and a father in the hospital. It was early Saturday morning when father and husband Terry Caffey crawled to his neighbor's house after being shot. Police say Penny Caffey and her 8 and 13 year old sons were shot and stabbed multiple times before dying. The house was then set on fire. In custody are 18 year old Bobby Johnson, 20 year old Charles Wade and 19 year old Charles Wilkinson. He's the boyfriend of 16 year old Erin Caffey. She's the victim's daughter and has also been arrested. Only the father, Terry, and the eldest daughter, Erin, survived the massacre. But were they both survivors? Once in custody, Charlie, Charles, and Bobby all claimed pretty blonde sweet Erin was the mastermind who plotted the evil and brutal attack on her own family. But Erin still insisted she was a victim. The question was, was Erin Caffey the victim, or was she the monster? Today, for the very first time since she was arrested, you will hear from Erin herself. She has never spoken publicly before. She has never answered questions about what happened that night until what you're going to hear today. How could this happen? What was she thinking? And you will hear new testimony from boys who were there who brutally murdered the Caffeys in their home. You're listening to Episode 3 of A Family Slaughtered for Teen Love, Mystery and Murder, Analysis by Dr. Phil. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street. Essential television. According to court documents, Wilkinson confessed to police that, quote, he and Aaron were in love and the only way they could be together is to kill the parents. Wilkinson allegedly offered Wade $2,000 to help. Each faces three counts of capital murder. Those kids were just dolls. And even that little girl we thought was precious. Nobody could understand why these seemingly good kids could commit such an appalling act. Least of all, Aaron's father, Terry. He had spent almost a week recuperating in the hospital, and although he was recovering from his physical injuries, his mental condition, understandably, was another story. Terry was a devout Christian who had always believed he had a good relationship with his daughter. They didn't always agree, but they always communicated. But by March 15, 2008, reality had sunk in. It was a little over two weeks after the murders when Terry held funerals for his wife, Penny, his 13-year-old son, Bubba, and his 8-year-old son, Tyler. 
All three were buried at White Rose Cemetery in Wills Point, Texas, a little over 30 miles west of Alba. Their three small headstones, side by side, marking their final resting place. While Terry was burying his family, the prosecutors were hard at work building a case against his only surviving daughter. With four suspects in jail, they began building their case as new witnesses started stepping forward. Many of them were Aaron and Charlie's own classmates. Charlie had told investigators Aaron insisted that killing her parents was their best option. It might sound like him just trying to shift the blame, but many of their friends from school backed that up. Aaron didn't seem like the type of girl who would want her own parents dead. Her father certainly couldn't imagine that. But a number of classmates recalled that Aaron actually talked about the idea relentlessly. Not just once or twice, but once or twice a day. During a lunch break in mid-February, one junior overheard Aaron tell Charlie that killing her parents was the only way they could be together. Charlie had desperately wanted to be with Aaron, and he promised to do whatever it took to make her happy. Charlie's father used to joke that Charlie had that lost puppy syndrome. He tried to help whoever was down on his luck, and Aaron was someone he wanted to rescue. Even though Charlie told several friends that he intended to kill Aaron's parents, according to them, he still sometimes seemed, well, ambivalent about the plan. He told one buddy that he only wanted to run away with her and not kill her parents. And as late as two days before the murders, he admitted to that same friend that he wished he could just get Aaron pregnant so the Caffies would have no choice but to accept him. But Aaron was insistent that she was just too young to have a baby, and as long as her parents were alive, she and Charlie would have to be apart. It sounded as though she was actually leveraging him, threatening him, that if he wanted her, he had to kill them. One of the senior girls told detectives that Aaron had Charlie wrapped around her finger. She could get him to do whatever she wanted. She asked for something. She got it. So did she really want her parents dead? Or did she really want them dead so she could be with Charlie? Were those two things even connected? Was she just using him as a way to get rid of them? And if this was such a topic around school, as I said, witnesses were coming forward saying, she didn't talk about this once or twice, she talked about this once or twice a day. Why didn't anybody tell anybody? Why didn't anybody go to a teacher or an administrator, a principal, or their parents and say, this girl's talking about killing her parents and she's talking about it relentlessly? Did they just not think she was serious, that they were just joking around? We actually know in situations of mass shootings, such as school shootings, there's a phenomenon known as leakage. And in as much as 80% of the cases where someone shoots multiple people, they tell at least one person 
what they're going to do and when they're going to do it before it happens. And in 60-something percent of the cases, they tell two or more people what they're going to do and when they're going to do it. Think about that. In the majority of the cases, the shooters tell one or two or more people that they're going to go shoot the place up and when they're going to do it. Yet no one takes action. That's exactly what happened here. According to Bobby, after the murders, Aaron wanted to get out of the car and make sure everyone was dead. And it was Aaron who insisted her brothers be killed. Now, you heard me right. I just said Aaron insisted her brothers be killed. She said they picked on her and she didn't want them in foster care. Two reasons, revenge and protection. Bobby also revealed that after the murders, Aaron seemed elated and told everyone in the car that now she was free. Again, emotional age. How childish is that? How immature and uninsightful is it to believe you're going to have your parents killed and nobody's going to look at you? Charles Wade's confession also confirmed that it was Aaron who wanted her brothers killed for the same reason Bobby stated. They picked on her and she didn't want them in foster care. He also agreed with Bobby on Aaron's demeanor after she thought that her entire family had been killed. He said she had been happier than a kid at Christmas. Even Bobby's cellmates started speaking up. According to one, Bobby told her what investigators had since discovered, that Aaron had planned to murder her family, but had put it off when her grandfather had passed away. Another cellmate said that Bobby had told her that Aaron had convinced the boys to kill her family and had told Charlie and Charles that she was being abused by her parents. Again, just to reiterate, despite all the investigations into the family and the murders, there has been absolutely no evidence of abuse in the Caffey family. But the evidence against Aaron was certainly mounting. One of the things investigators look for is consistency. If you start hearing the same thing from people who don't know each other, who have no common denominator, and they're telling you the same thing about a suspect, there's a pretty good chance it's the truth. If you have one person that works at one store in one town and they know your suspect and are telling you that he or she said A, B, and C, well, maybe that's right, maybe it's not. But now all of a sudden you've got somebody coming along telling you exactly the same A, B, and C, and they don't know the first person that told you that. You're now getting it from independent sources. They didn't compare notes, but they're telling you the same story. Meanwhile, Terry had been staying with his sister as he recovered, and as you might expect, he was still in pretty bad shape psychologically and fighting a lot of problems physically. Every night, he would barricade himself in his room 
He would be awake all night thinking that someone was coming to get him. He was taking pills by the handful, Xanax, pain pills, anything he could get his hands on to numb himself. At that point, he had hit rock bottom and no longer wanted to live. One night, he grabbed his gun and drove to where his house used to stand. It was about an hour's drive from his sister's, and he got there just as the sun was coming up. He remembers standing in the ashes of what used to be his happy family home. He had his gun in his hand, ready to kill himself. But out of the corner of his eye, he saw a piece of paper kind of flapping in the wind. He says he doesn't know why, but he picked it up. He says that piece of paper, flapping in the breeze, saved his life. Here's what it said, and I'm quoting from that piece of paper. I couldn't understand why you, God, would take my family and leave me behind to struggle along without them. I may not totally understand why you had to take my family. And I guess I still don't understand that part of it. But I do believe that you're sovereign. You're in control. Terry said he could tell that that page came from a book, that it must have been Penny's because he didn't recognize it. But for a man as religious as Terry, he believed he had received a sign, and that single charred page had given him the peace to go on without his family. But what he hadn't told anybody was that even before that horrendous night, Terry had been uneasy. Two weeks before the murders, he had a dream. He was sure it was a premonition. Terry was at the front door telling him goodbye like she did every day, and as he was pulling out of the driveway, he looked back at her and got an eerie feeling. It was a feeling that just completely took him over, like he was going to somehow lose his family. During that two-week period, he would wake up in the wee hours of the morning almost every night. When he looked over at his alarm clock, the time turned out to be exactly the same time as when the murders took place. Terry said that during that time he would pray and ask God to protect his family. Only in his mind, he thought the premonition was pointing to a car wreck. Ultimately, Terry gathered himself together and just months after the murders, he moved into an RV back on the property where his family was killed. Terry's thought was that he'd be darned if somebody was going to run him off his family's property, that he would leave when he was good and ready. But some nights it was pitch black by the time Terry got home. His house had been way out in the woods, and he'd have to work up the courage to get out of the car. He bought a pistol and slept with it beside him. During that time, he met with a prosecutor in the case, Lisa Tanner. Terry, from the very beginning, was wanting to know uh, what the evidence was against Aaron. Lisa was showing me statements where classmates were saying that they overheard Aaron and Charlie plotting the murders of her family. It was awful. It was the hardest meeting I have ever, ever had as a prosecutor. The fact that these kids were all so brutal and so um, premeditated, that they were just so cavalier about human life and that they were just so stupid about 
going about this, at the time, this was the most disturbing case I had ever seen. You know, none of this makes sense, and even to this day, it, no, it doesn't make any sense at all. I mean, it was senseless. You've got four young people, and not one came forward to try to stop this. Terry was still trying to make sense of it all when just weeks after the murders, he had visited his daughter in prison. Although Aaron had admitted to Terry that, in a way, she had given the go-ahead for the murders, she also insisted that all she really had wanted to do was run away. Terry's reaction to his daughter's story, well, it was surprising to some. I guess my greatest fear is I don't want people to see Aaron as a monster. I want people to see the, the Aaron I knew before this. I guess the only explanation is that his protective fatherly instinct is still coming through, and he just cannot wrap his mind around the fact that his daughter was actually a perpetrator here. He still so hopes that somehow or another she was caught up in this, that she was manipulated, brainwashed, a victim, and he doesn't want people to think ill of her. He hasn't accepted the fact yet that she was manipulative, that what she did was monstrous. And while he's worrying about her reputation, her image, prosecutors were working on nailing down exactly what happened that night. Their plan was to take the boys to trial first, and after that, Bobby. They hoped by that time, with all the evidence against Aaron, they wouldn't have to go to trial with her. Now, you've heard that Charlie Wilkinson, Charles Waite, and young Bobby, the girlfriend, have all confessed and given great detail about what happened that night. And so you might be wondering, what do you mean, take them to court? Well, there's such a thing as due process. And they can back out of these confessions at any time. They can complain that the confessions were coerced or that they were not in the right state of mind, etc., etc. They can back out of that up until the time they go on record in court under oath with their plea and accept their sentence. So they have to go through the process. They have to take them into the court of law, stand them before the bench, ask them the questions. Do you understand what you're charged with? Do you plead guilty? What is it you're pleading guilty to? Make your statements about what you did, what your role in all of this was, et cetera, et cetera. And that creates a court record that can be used with any non-pleading co-conspirators. Prosecutors poured over interview tapes of Charlie, Bobby, and Charles talking about what happened that night. They now knew for certain the murders were planned, and Aaron had to have at least been part of it. Remember, when they first drove up to the Caffey house, the dog kept barking. Not only did Aaron quiet the dog, she then called them and told them to come back. Here's Charles Wade talking to the investigators. Um, originally, she was supposed to keep the dog quiet. Okay, she was supposed to keep the dog quiet. Well, she calls back around 2 o'clock, mm-hmm. right at 2 o'clock, and uh, says that she's out that the road would come pick her up and discuss what we're going to do. And you picked her up, did she have all her clothes with her in the bag of stuff she packed? Even though Charlie and Bobby were both questioned separately, their accounts agreed with Charles, and they are chilling. It was all packed, still in the house. 
Okay, so she gets in the car with you and Charles and Bobby. I tried to talk her to go back inside to get her stuff. Right. Just like, just go inside, get your stuff, and what little bit of money you have in that box, and then come inside. Okay. And then you can just run away. Everything will be all right that way. Ain't nobody gonna die. I was trying to talk her out of it. Trying to talk her out of what? Changing her mind. Changing her mind from what? Trying to kill her parents. Okay. Think about it. This was the same night that Erin and her family had been having fun together. In fact, they were actually having a pillow fight. A pillow fight, laughing, having a great family time. This was such a contrast. I just had to speak to Terry about it. She was. She seemed normal. There was nothing indicating that there was something wrong. You realize now, at the time she's doing that, she knows not one of you will ever see daylight again. And that's what's been hard for me to wrap my mind around because she seems so normal, so happy at that moment. She's laughing and playing yeah. and cutting up knowing you will be murdered within hours. 16 years old, does she really comprehend really what's about to take place? But you understand that's a pretty black and white thing. I've either got people coming here tonight to kill my family or I don't. Mm -hmm. And as we now know, this wasn't a spur of the moment anger sort of thing. She had planned, she had been involved in the planning of this. That sounds to me astoundingly disconnected. For her to be able to do that knowing what's gonna happen. But I think you've got the catalyst here of, of, of this teenage girl who has been making bad choice after bad choice. A a bad choice is missing curfew. A a bad choice is getting pregnant. But executing a plan to murder your entire family, bad choice just doesn't seem like big enough words to wrap around that. You know, clearly Terry's putting a frame around this, but I've got to tell you, bad choices just does not seem like the right context here. Bad choices are like... You went out with the wrong people. You drank a beer when you were underage. You lied to your mom or dad and said you were spending the night at some girl's house when you were all going to a party out in the woods. These are bad choices. Hacking your family to death, shooting your father in the face, that doesn't fall in the category of bad choices to me, and that causes me to believe that he has not yet accepted the gravity of either what she has done or her role in what she has done. He's still trying to minimize, trivialize, and that suggests to me that she is still manipulating him. There was still more evidence that pointed to this being more than just a bad choice. Remember that Charlie and Charles had murdered Penny and the boys They then robbed the house, coming away with jewelry and $375 and change. Charles Wade revealed some very detailed and damning information in his confession tape. Listen to what he had to say to investigators. Where did y'all know how to look for the money? Erin. She told y'all where the money was? Yes. Where was the money? She said that there was money in a lockbox. Where was the lockbox? It was uh, over there where the... Um, you walk in the bathroom, uh-huh. go to the left, uh-huh. you're going to see a washer and dryer on your right, 
On the left hand side on the floor, there's a little gray box. It was a little gray box. A little log box. Yeah. But so it was in the laundry room, bathroom. Okay. Where else did y'all get money from that she told you where it was? Uh, the wallet and the purse. Where was the wallet and the purse? I don't know. Charlie found those. From Wade's confession, it was obvious Aaron would have to have told him not only the location of the lockbox, but the combination to get into it. Even Terry could see that. I do believe that she gave him the combination. And she gave, according to what he's saying, and he is correct, of where to go in Mm -hmm. and turn and where it was. This isn't Charlie, this is Charles. But Terry was having a hard time processing Aaron's involvement, even after the two of us spoke with the lead prosecutor on the case. They were asked by investigators, what was your plan, mm-hmm. the three of them? They had, they, no, they plan. had no plan for yeah, the next day. They had no plan. It, Char- it was Charles that bought the boots? Charles bought the boots. Um, Bobby went to work. Mm-hmm. Um, in his debrief, Charlie said that their only thought was that Aaron would lay low for a while. And when Charles bought the boots, he then took you to where the other boots were, correct? The next day. Um, he, he, Up under he, the bridge abutment? He bought the boots. Um, he was apprehended shortly thereafter. He confessed. The next day, he came back and wanted to come clean er. I suppose, and he then led the investigators out to the creek where the sword was, where the one lockbox was, where Aaron's suitcase was, and the boots were, the old, the bloody boots were in the box from the new boots stuffed underneath the bridge. And he left them there because if he got away with it, he said then he would have two pair of boots. As a matter of fact, the money I think they used, to, or he used to buy the boots, was stolen from my wallet or the lockbox. You understand, too, that there's no question, if we say what was her level of involvement, she had to tell them where the lockboxes were and what the combinations were. So he had the specific information. And if you're running away, that involves people leaving the house. That doesn't involve people coming in the house. She's giving them information to use inside the house because she knows they're coming in the house. Because this isn't a runaway, it's a murder. Remember, Aaron had told Terry that night she had ultimately agreed just to run away with Charlie. But her actions clearly contradicted her words. Terry's reluctance to look at the facts, well, it's understandable at one level. This is a horrific crime and defies easy explanation. Even though Charlie and Charles Wade had been drinking that night, by all counts, neither one of them was using drugs, and Aaron's desire to have her parents killed did not appear to be motivated by any mistreatment or trauma. Even her court-mandated psychological evaluation failed to point to any evidence of abuse in the Caffey home. Prosecutor Lisa Tanner had no doubt that Aaron was if not the driving force behind the brutal murders, at least a co-driver. It didn't matter if a single one of the other defendants testified against Aaron, Lisa felt that Aaron would ultimately be convicted of capital murder, with or without their testimony. The number one proof of Aaron's guilt was something we haven't gotten to yet. And it was indisputable. What is that evidence? Well... The prosecution had Aaron's cell phone records. Those records corroborated a pivotal point in Charlie's account of the murders. That from 1146 until 1248 that night, 
Aaron called him six times from inside the Caffey house. But the kicker was that from 122 to 158, Aaron called him seven more times. Aaron's cell phone records agreed completely with what Charlie told investigators. Aaron kept calling him back, wanting to know where they were and assuring them she would keep the dog quiet. I have the phone records here, Lisa. Uh, in these phone records, we have all of this phone chatter between Aaron and Charlie. What did you make of that when you were investigating this? That was one of the most corroborative things to the statements that the other three gave. Charlie was so detailed in telling us about Aaron calling him from the house uh, repeatedly and then asking them to come over and then calling later again asking, where are you, where are you, where are you? Thirteen times Mm -hmm. she talked to him as they're working the details of this out. She's telling me that their conversation is, first of all, where are you at? He said, don't come. She said, don't come. Let's talk about this. They're just back and forth. Let's not do this. First, let's run away. What Aaron told her father about the phone calls directly contradicted Charlie and Charles. The boys, both interviewed separately, agreed about the purpose and content of those calls, even before the prosecution obtained the phone records and confirmed their statements. But Terry... He was still hanging on to Aaron's runaway story. It would have made more sense if you want to run, run away, run away. At least your, your family would still be alive. But it, you can't make sense out of nonsense. Mm-hmm. Runaways take their stuff and run away. Mm-hmm. You know, you're saying, well, what she maybe she wasn't planning on run away. She had already planned on to kill her family. If I was going to do that, I think I'd be dressed, shoes on, jacket on, suitcase in hand. Let's get out of here. Go do what you're going to do. Before Aaron was prosecuted... Lisa Tanner sat down with Terry a second time and laid out all the evidence against Aaron and her conspirators. The phone records, the separate statements by all the three conspirators implicating Aaron, photos of the bloody boots that Charles Wade had worn at the scene, and the empty lockbox that needed a combination to open. Lisa wanted to explain to Terry why prosecutors had asked the court to certify Aaron as an adult. It was an incredibly difficult meeting, not only for Terry, but for Lisa as well. She had to brief the victim of a crime who also happened to be the parent of the perpetrator. In other words, she had to lay out the evidence to a man whose daughter wanted him dead and was responsible for the deaths of the rest of his family. And the hardest thing to have to tell Terry was about Aaron and Charlie having sex after the murders. That was when he broke down and cried. He didn't understand any of it. He knew that Aaron had become more defiant when she began dating Charlie, and he was aware that Charlie had seemed to alienate his daughter. But he told Lisa that day, he never saw any of it coming. Now, clearly, Terry wants to say Aaron fell in with a bad crowd, that Charlie was a bad influence, that he was the loudest voice in Aaron's ear, whereas before, Terry and Penny were the best voice in Aaron's ear. But they got crowded out by Charlie, and he corrupted their daughter. 
But even after Terry had seen all the evidence, he continued to visit Aaron in jail. He never wavered in his support of her. At court appearances, he would stand next to his daughter. He would hold her hand. He said that it was part of his faith. It was the imperative of unconditional love. And in the end, Terry was consistent. He practiced what he preached. When Charlie and Charles were first arrested, Terry was adamant that prosecutors go after the death penalty. But by the time Terry had to make a definitive decision, he changed his mind. He said he kept going back to one question, what would Jesus do? He said he just didn't want more killing. He didn't want to put the boys to death. He wanted them to think about what they had done, be it 10, 20, 30 years down the line. So in October 08, both Terry and Penny's family met with the prosecuting attorneys and read compassionate letters stating their decision to take the death penalty off the table for the boys. Lisa Tanner said they were the most compassionate letters she had ever heard, and they reiterated Terry's heartfelt revelation. There had been too much killing already. Then in November, eight months after the March murders, Charlie Wilkinson and Charles Wade accepted a plea deal. It was pretty straightforward. In exchange for taking the death penalty off the table, they both pled guilty to three counts of capital murder. According to Lisa Tanner, Charles Wade's attorney accepted the offer even before she finished telling him what it was. When the two boys stood in court that day to receive their sentence, the judge made sure they understood that Terry, in his compassion, had given them back their life. Had it not been for Terry, they would have gotten the death penalty. And let me assure you, when you get the death penalty in Texas, it's a death penalty. Bobby Johnson's sentence was lighter but she was still legally culpable. Both boys had told prosecutors that they had tried to take Bobby home before the murders, but that she had wanted to stay and be there for Aaron. She pled guilty to being an accomplice who did not use a weapon, and she was sentenced to 40 years in prison. Only a few months later, in January of 2009, Aaron also accepted a plea deal. She could have gotten life without the possibility of parole. But instead, she agreed to two life sentences plus an additional 25 years. Before offering a deal, prosecutors had discussed it with Terry. At the time, they could not seek the death penalty for Aaron because she was under 17 and it was unconstitutional. Terry wanted his daughter to at least have some hope of getting out of prison. So prosecutors structured a plea deal so that Aaron would be eligible for parole one day. Terry wanted to give Aaron something to live for, although he said that he was aware she might not get out in his lifetime. All that happened without Aaron ever being questioned by the police or ever being put on the stand at trial, in large part because she was a minor and you can't question a minor. Since the night of the murders, Aaron has told three totally different versions of what happened that night. 
She's now admitted that two of those accounts were just outright lies. But she is adamant that the story she told her father about the night her mother and brothers were brutally murdered is the real story. And you'll remember that's the story where she said that she wanted to go with Charlie and he was going to sneak into the house and get the bag she had packed. But when they got back to the house, Charles Wade said he had come to kill and he wanted the money. And they argued and Aaron got tired of listening to them, so she told them to, quote, just do it. So she's saying that's the real story which to me is the most cold-blooded of the three that she's told. With Terry's support, I met with Erin for an exclusive interview. She is serving life plus 25 years for the murder of her mother and brothers at the Hilltop Unit of the Texas Department of Criminal Justice in Gatesville, Texas. So when I sat down with her, and started asking her questions about that night and everything leading up to it. And she started answering those questions. Understand, this is the first time since that night, the first time since those murders, that she had been subjected to any kind of cross-examination whatsoever. So up to that point, no one knows exactly what part Aaron played in these horrible murders. And then what you're getting ready to hear, I am on a quest for the truth. Before I play that interview for you, let me set the stage. Oftentimes, when you do a prison interview like this, you have to conduct the interview through glass. They're on one side, and you can give them a mic, and that's it. The cameras have to be on your side. In this case, they allowed us to be in the room together. And we were able to have cameras around so we actually could get a good look and see who she was. And when she entered, she was uncommonly well-groomed for prison. These women have gotten very creative in grinding up pencils and doing all different kinds of things to create makeup and hair products and that sort of thing. She wasn't overdone, but she clearly had made an effort to present herself well. She came in, she was cordial, but matter of fact. She was very slight in her build and very timid, very laid back in her demeanor, very soft-smoking. Sometimes I was barely able to hear her, but hear her I did. And I asked her the questions that I knew her father wanted to hear the answers to, that I knew everyone that knew anything about this case wanted to hear the answers to. Here's part of that conversation. How are you? Why are you here? For the murders of my mother and two brothers. You pled guilty because you are guilty, is that correct? Yes, sir. What did you do that made you part of this murder? I knew about it and didn't say anything. Tell me how this all happened. 
I met Charlie and um, things were going good. My mother and father didn't really like him. Right. And um, the first time he ever mentioned, you know, that he wanted to kill my parents was, you know, after Christmas, he had gave me a ring, proposed to me, and my parents, you know, didn't want us to. And it was a promise ring, not an engagement yes, ring, right? Yes, and you said that he brought up killing your parents, yes, right? Yes. Why was that necessary in his mind? I don't know. I guess he said it out of anger the first time because me and my mom had gotten into a fight. So it was two months plus a little bit yes, sir. that this had been talked about. Yes, sir. Did at any time during that two months, did you say, whoa, wait a minute, what did you mean kill my parents? I really didn't think that he would follow through with it. I would just ask him questions like, how, I mean, how would you do that? You know, instead of just saying, whoa, 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 stop. Well, let's fast forward to that night. How does this go down on the night that it happened? We had talked at school that morning, and he said, you know, just let's, um, let's kill your parents. We'll, you know, run away to Maine together, and everything will be okay. I'll call my friend, and I'll come pick you up at 12. And that night around 11.45, I knew he was out there, so I made a phone call. I said, you know, where are you at? And he said, well, hurry up and get out here and hung up. So I walked out the house and picked up my little dog, Buddy, and was petting him all the way to the end of the driveway. Before I knew it, there was a car that came, and it was Bobby and Charles. All right, so you're outside, and he says, I'm here to kill your parents, so what happened? I go to get in the car. Um, you know, have no shoes on, no nothing, and he's griping at me for not having, you know, re being ready, you know, and not having my bags or anything. Then we drive down to, like, this rundown church. We were trying to get out of it. Oh, we'll just run away. But, you know, they kept begging me on about, you know, and I just guess it was, like, feeding into it. So did you finally say okay? Yes, sir. You finally said, okay, go, go kill my parents, my mother and my father. The woman that brought me into the world, people that have fed me and clothed me and housed me and loved me every day of my life, sure, go kill them. Yes, sir. Did you see weapons then? No, I didn't see weapons. How, how did you think they were going to kill them? Well, I knew they were in the back of the car because I heard slinging and bangs. They were getting weapons? Yes. What did they do that was so bad that you were willing for them to be killed? Nothing. Did you think about the next morning my parents will be dead? You had two little brothers in the house. What was going to happen with them? I didn't really think about that too much. Did you think they were going to be killed? Crossed my mind, yes. So you're sitting in the car, and, and this, this guy says, we're going to go up there and massacre your family. And they, they get it done. So where did you go then? Back to the house where they used to stay at. What did you do? We just laid on the couch, and uh, Charlie wanted to have sex, and I told him no, and this guy came out from behind the house up in the back bedroom, and Charlie handed him something and asked him to clean it, and it was a gun, it was wrapped. And the guy said, that, you know, we could go lay in his bedroom because he was leaving for work. And we go back there, and I just wanted to just sleep and just not wake up. Did you have sex? So your parents 
or murder, did they tell you that they killed your little brothers? No. Well, you knew they set the house on fire. I looked back and I saw red coming out of the window and I, I mean, put two and two together. Okay, were you in love with Charlie? Sort of, kind of. I mean, you're, you don't seem very passionate about it. So this guy that you say you're kind of maybe sort of in love with just kills your whole family, then you have sex. What were you thinking and feeling about that? Um, I didn't enjoy it. How'd you feel about your family being dead? Uh, I didn't want to think. Here's what we know from the forensic evidence. Charlie crept into your parents' bedroom and just started shooting them. They shot your mother in the head twice. These are bullet wounds in your father's body. Have you seen these? This is where they shot him in the face. This is where they shot him in, in the head. Did, did he do anything that you would consider deserving this? As you listen to that, I know you're having a reaction to her responses. So let me interject here before we go on. As horrific as this was, Aaron has taken kind of a Scarlett O'Hara gone with the wind approach to this. I just won't think about that today. I'll think about that tomorrow. She's just put this out of her mind. It's like, I'll just think about this another day. And I actually believe this may be the first time she's seen photos of her father shot. I think it's the first time she has been confronted with the reality of what she has done, what she has been involved with here. To think about it in the abstract is one thing. To be confronted with the reality, the cruelty of what was done is another. Your father, Terry, heard your mother say to Charlie, where is Terry? To which Charlie replied, quote, Terry is dead. Quit fighting this and it will go quick. And then he heard Charlie tell Penny, die, bitch, die. And then he took a samurai sword, he slit her throat, and started cutting her head off. Did you know that's what happened? Your father said that he heard your mother gurgling for air every time she took a breath. Is that what you wanted to happen to them? Well, what, well tell me what you wanted to happen to them. You knew they were going in there to kill them, right? What did you think was going to happen? That they weren't really going to do it. You thought they would chicken out or something at the end? Your father said that he heard your brother Matthew say, Charlie, don't do this. Why are you doing this? 
And then there was a gunshot, and Matt said nothing else. Because as it turns out, he was shot in the face. Did you want your little brothers to be killed? You know, Erin again shakes her head no. Like she doesn't want to really engage in that part of it concerning her brother. She shakes her head no. It's like she can't face it. Tyler was a... You knew they stabbed him three times in the back of the neck, right? My dad told me. They decided to kill your little brothers because, quote, little ones talk. They didn't want any witnesses. Charlie said the little boys were really scared and he couldn't look at their faces. And Matthew tried to put up a fight by kicking him, and so Charles shot him in the face with a 22. Why did that happen? They practically decapitate your mother, they shoot your father, they shoot and stab your brothers to death and leave them to burn in the fire. I mean, what started the, the friction with your parents? Was it because they were trying to break y'all up? Yeah. yeah. Did you want to break up? Yeah. So you really didn't want to be with Charlie? So you really didn't want to be with Charlie? Another head shake. Is this because it's easier to lie if you don't have to actually say it out loud? But she shakes her head no. I follow up. Why not? The Wednesday before all this happened, um, my mom comes home and has Facebook or MySpace things saying he was talking to other girls and talking nasty about me to his friends. And I broke up with him that Wednesday. Within two days, he kept, you know, following me around at school and wouldn't stop. If you didn't want to be with him because he was flirting with other girls or talking to other girls on the internet, why would it be necessary to kill your family then if you were breaking up with him? What's the point of him needing to do that? Because he wouldn't leave me alone and, and I thought I was in love with him at the time, you know? I mean, looking back on it now, I know that I, I, it wasn't, it was just lust. Were your parents overprotective? Yeah. Because your family was described as, people say there's no such thing as a perfect family, but they said y'all were about as close as you could get. People at the church just loved you, that you were Miss Personality, you were bubbly and always happy to help anybody with anything. How did you go from that to being involved in a plot to massacre your family? How do you transition from the daughter that everybody would dream of to sitting in a car plotting the death of your family. Every parent in America wants to know, what do we look for? How does this happen? I guess, you know, Charlie was my first real boyfriend. Every girl my age, you know, talks about, you know, getting pregnant and having a family and every girl wants that. And. I just thought I was grown. How does being grown become murder? You needed them out of the way for a reason. What was it? Was it a freedom thing? Maybe. I showed my interview to Terry. I wanted to talk to him about Aaron's responses. Really not Dr. Phil to 
Terry, but just really dad to dad. Here's part of that conversation. Okay. What happened that she was that vulnerable to be led to such a, 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 a horrific act? Well, it's hard, difficult to watch this. You know, I, you know, none of this makes sense. And even to this day, it, you know, it doesn't make any sense at all. I mean, it was senseless. You've got four young people and not one came forward to try to stop this. I think she just got in over her head. She began to make one bad choice after the other. And she was trying to cover this up. I mean, look at this precious child. People said when she would sing in the choir, she would become so moved that she would cry sometimes during the songs. How did you talk to yourself about that in your mind about how can we go from that Mm -hmm. to her being involved in her little brother being stabbed in the back of the neck with a samurai sword and left to burn alive? That's what makes no sense. You know, if if I was wrong some way, if we were wrong as parents, we, you know, tell us. But you have no answer for that. Right. You knew when she said, they said she got out her bedroom window, you knew that was a lie right. because there is a bolted yeah, had air a, conditioner. Had air conditioner bolted actually to the window frame. And I knew it would take a drill or something, uh, tools to remove that. So you knew that was so, right. so things were already, even though I was in the hospital in that condition, in shock, these things just, it just wasn't making sense. What I don't understand, if she was really, if she hadn't, at this point, not changing her mind or had any second thoughts, why wasn't she fully dressed? suitcase in hand and ready to go. When she got in the car with those guys, she oh, she, she was bare feet, pajama bottoms, t-shirts, like 39, 40 degrees, no bag at hand. She's telling me that she had changed her mind, went down there and said, just go, we'll talk about this at school Monday, just go. As far as the dog barking, she said, I was afraid that you guys were gonna wake up and find out what was going on. When you ask her about it uh, that night during a visit to the prison, she said that they just planned to run away. Okay, well, if it was a plan to run away, then I'll ask you what you just asked me. Mm-hmm. If she was running away, why did she go out with no shoes and her pajamas and leave her bag inside? Mm-hmm. Again, I'm not denying her involvement. I, cause I told her from the very beginning, Aaron, you just need to tell the truth, no matter what that is, and we'll deal with it. What was Erin's reaction to the murders of her mother and brothers? And for the first time, Erin admits how she felt when she learned her father was still alive. I can tell you her response is shocking. Plus, a really startling revelation. I spoke to someone who says Aaron actually asked him to kill her family long before she got Charlie to agree to do it. That and more in episode four of A Family Slaughtered for Teen Love, Mystery and Murder, Analysis by Dr. Phil.